Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I want to, and I think you do too, we want to be discipled by Jesus and his disciples. I mean, I actually think there was, there was, there was 12, and I would include Paul in that 12. There's, there were 12 people that were set aside to whom the Lord trusted his, his, his word to be passed on. I, I think they're apostolic people, like missionaries and all of that, even today, that's fine. But they aren't authority like scripture. And there were certain people set apart to give us the truth about Jesus. He taught them himself. Um, um, even Paul had, a, had his own personal encounter with Jesus. So there's certain people to whom I can trust my soul. And certain people that when they tell me this is how you live the Christian life, this is how I live the Christian life. Uh, other people have opinions. But, but those people that he said, this is my apostles, the, these are the ones. And Jesus, of course, himself we want him to disciple us. Years ago, there was this kind of talk, and you'd say, you know, you got to reproduce yourself. You got to pour yourself into others. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want two. I don't want two of me, and I don't think God does either. <laughs> That's icky. Uh, I'm having enough trouble getting along with. Aren't you? I mean, do, do you? Any, does anyone want two of you? You know, it's no. Oh. What we want two of, as it were, is we want more of Jesus. So the only one worthy of being modeled after and becoming like is Jesus himself. He, he is the one we're modeling. So when we walk through it like this, what we're doing is not simply hopping through the highlights. We're going in it and we want to see it. We were there in the, in the Temple Mount looking at this uh, encounter uh, with Jesus and these religious leaders. And we listen to what he said and we try to really understand what he said. And then what did that mean for us? We, we watched him clear that temple. By the way, the other day, uh, someone questioned me because I had said that, that Temple Mount area was, I think, over 30 acres. Do you remember me saying that? It sounds pretty wild. And so somebody said, are you sure? I mean, that's, <laughs> you know. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think it's 32. Well, this past week, you know, there's all that difficulty going on on, the, on that very Temple Mount right now. And in, the, in a news report, it said that, Whole, that temple area, as I said, is 37 acres, 15 hectic, hectares, 21 soccer pitches. It's huge. And I was so right. I mean, I, I, I just, I do enjoy that. And, and, and I die a thousand deaths when I'm wrong, too, by the way. You're <laughs> like, oh, man. Um, so what we're doing today, uh, we're going we're gonna to go with, with, with Jesus and watch him have a dialogue with a man named Nicodemus. And we're going to listen to the whole process and we're going to see it in its context. Why? Because if we could, we want to be, be in his pocket. We'd like to be right there listening to him, watching him, and understanding what he says. Amen? Come Holy Spirit, do that wonderful work in us. Just awaken our eyes, our spiritual eyes, open our ears. And Lord, we bring you soft hearts. We trust you. Of all the voices and all the people in history, 
It's you that we trust. It's you that we're following through the veil into eternal life. So teach us, our Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. I'm going to start at John chapter 2, verse 23. And I'll read down to 25, and then I'll stop, and then I'll pick that up and read uh, 3, 1 through 5 a little bit later. He has done that whole process that I mentioned on the Temple Mount, and then John says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, now let me stop for a second. The Passover is a one-day event. It's a one-day feast, right? It's on the 14th of Nisan. But immediately following it, the 15th of Nisan through, what is it, the 21st, you have a week called the Week of Unleavened Bread. The whole festival is about the Exodus. You have the Passover lamb and you have the unleavened bread, just as they did in the Exodus. And so sometimes the writers will refer to the entire eight days as the Passover feast. Sometimes they'll refer to the entire eight days as the unleavened bread. But it's all, it's a package. And so Jesus has stayed those eight days there in Jerusalem. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Would you say believed in his name? observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Would you say, for he knew all men? Because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Say, in man. Isn't that a strange statement? Here are a lot of people believing in him, And he didn't trust them. What is up? All right, here we go. Trustworthy. While he was in Jerusalem, the feast of the during the feast of the Passover and the week of unleavened bread, which followed it, Jesus must have begun his ministry of healing the sick and delivering those oppressed by demons. Because John says, many believed in his name, beholding him. Now this is literal. Beholding him. And when John uses that word beholding him, he means to see with spiritual eyes. They, they begin to see and understand uh, who it was they were seeing because of the signs. That would be the miracles and the, and all, and the deliverances and things that he was doing. And then John adds the strangest statement. He says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. Then he reinforces that statement by saying, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man. Now, let me stop there a second. John is using a a term in Greek. There's a couple of words for man. One meaning kind of the guy, this particular guy, and one meaning humankind. And in this case, not only does he use the word for humankind, he puts a definite article on it, so it's the man, mankind in general. So what he knew is he knew about mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it's easy to see that he might not trust people who didn't believe in him, but John tells us he didn't trust those who did. And then he tells us why. He says it's because Jesus knew what was inside Every human being. So, what was it that he knew about us that he didn't trust? As we'll soon discover, he knew that religious enthusiasm is fickle. It can evaporate in a moment. He knew that the human heart 
must undergo a profound transformation before anyone can be trusted to follow him, listen, on the path that leads to the cross. See, everybody wants a God who will bless them. Everybody enjoys miracles. Everybody enjoys God doing stuff. But when you start talking about a cross, when you start talking about me following you to the cross... (laughs) And me having to, to, to die to myself and, 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 and serve my God like that. Oh, that's another story altogether. That's a, that's a different kind of thing. And then to, to help us understand this truth, John lets us listen to a dialogue between Jesus and one of those people who believed in him. The man's name was Nicodemus. And during their conversation... Jesus explained to him what would have to happen inside him before God could consider him trustworthy. This is a conversation to which we need to listen carefully. Because until this happens inside us, Jesus doesn't trust us either. All right, here we go. John 3, now let's pick up where we, I stopped. John 3, I'm going to read down to verse 5. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He is one of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the top council of Jewish leaders in Israel. He may have been one of the guys standing there in the temple that confronted Jesus over this whole cleansing the temple thing. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and I'll explain that phrase born again in just a moment, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why don't you say unless one, and I want you to say born from above. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, literally, by the way, amen, amen, is what he would have said in Hebrew. Amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water, say born of water, water. and the spirit, say born of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And I'll stop there. I, I want to make one thing clear right away. The literal Greek, is no, there's no question what the Greek says. Jesus says you must be born from above. Say that, say that. would you? Born from above. It doesn't say born again. There's, there's, there are Greek words for again. But it doesn't use that. The reason the translators come up with again is because that's what Nicodemus heard when he heard Jesus say, you've got to be born. He went, are you saying I got to go back into my mother's womb? And so the translators go, well, see, Nicodemus thought it meant again, so that must be what it meant. No, it isn't what it meant. Nicodemus is, 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 is not thinking straight here. Nicodemus is hearing, you must be born from above, and then he goes into this, do I have to go back into my mother's womb thing? But it literally says born from above, and I'll show you why that matters. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin and possibly... One of the most popular teachers in Israel. Jesus will say, are you not a teacher? He says, are you the teacher of Israel? In other words, this guy is popular. This guy has a real voice. 
And as he watched Jesus perform miracles and heard him speak, he became one of those who believed in his name. He was an example of a sincere but untransformed seeker. And as we listen to him, we can hear what he believed. He believed Jesus had been sent by God to do what he was doing. He believed Jesus was teaching the truth. He believed God was at work through Jesus because no one could do the signs he was doing without divine power. And because of what he believed, he longed to talk to Jesus privately. Yet if word got back to the high priest or those on the Sanhedrin who were hostile to Jesus, he would be pressed to renounce Jesus. And if he didn't, he'd be, he would probably be removed. Probably my foot. He would have been just thrown out. They would, have, they would have called on him to blaspheme Jesus. That's what they would have called on him to do if, if, he, were, if he were caught doing this. And he's not ready yet to, to make that kind of, of, of choice. So to protect himself, he came at night to the olive grove where Jesus was camping to ask questions. Let me stop there. I think there's a practical side to what the statement means when it says Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Um, If you are as effective as Jesus was, healing and delivering people there in the city of Jerusalem, you got crowds of people and you got impressed people. And what's going to be happening is people are going to be asking you to stay in their home. Would you come to my home for dinner? Would you, and please stay with us. You know, don't go, because he'd been camping on the hillside, right? Out of the Mount of Olives. Oh, don't stay out there in that nasty olive grove. Come and stay in our home. And Jesus would not. He would go back every day and camp in that olive grove. Why? Because he knew someone would turn him in. It's already dangerous. The leaders already don't, already want to, want to kill this guy if they can. And so he's already got that climate. So he doesn't trust anybody. No matter how enthusiastic you are about him, how polite, how complimentary, how impressed you are by his miracles, under pressure, under the right kind of circumstances, I can't trust you. And it's not my time yet. I can't be, it can't happen now. I have a whole ministry. There'll be a time, time, but not now. So Jesus is out on that hillside. So I think it's probably out in the, well, it's almost undoubtedly out in the olive grove, maybe around a campfire, that Nicodemus comes at night. Jesus didn't waste any time in telling this powerful religious leader that God would have to miraculously transform his heart before he could even begin to understand the new way of life that Jesus had come to make possible. He told him this using terms Nicodemus didn't understand at the time. He said he would have to be born from above. Say it one more time. Born. And for that to happen, he would have to be born of water. Say that. And born of the spirit. But Nicodemus didn't know what he meant. Yet because he was sincerely seeking the truth, a day was coming when he would understand and be changed. I'll show you a little later, Nicodemus did follow the Lord. What, what Jesus knew, as people watched Jesus, they believed different things about him. Some believed he was a great teacher, some a prophet, some even believed he was the promised Messiah. And believing doctrinal truth, truth about Jesus is good, a good thing. But it's not enough because truth alone can't change the human heart. You understand? Right theology, right, right understanding, a mental assent 
is good. It's not wrong. It's a good thing, but it's not enough. It's not what Jesus, and the person who simply has mental assent believes these things Jesus doesn't trust because something hasn't happened inside yet. We are still helpless. A person who has not had this change is still helpless to resist our flesh, and Jesus knew that. He knew that when real pressure, real temptation came along, those, quote, believers would betray him. And he knows the same thing about us today. That's one reason he was absolutely certain that Peter would betray him. Peter wasn't a bad man. He was a normal man. So there was no doubt that when the hour of darkness arrived, Peter and almost, I have to put that in, almost everyone else abandoned Jesus. Do you recall? Jesus, they, Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And he said, you, the, you will all leave me. You will all forsake me. And they all began to go, no, we won't. And Peter really went for it. Though I have to die with you, I will not betray you. Now, Peter's not lying. Peter believed that. Peter meant that. Peter is sincere. And Jesus turns to him and says, really? Before four o'clock in the morning, you'll have denied me three times. Love you, bro. (laughs) What, What did he know about him? What did he know about him? He knew that he believed. But he also knew the change wasn't complete yet. You know, I think Peter's already, in a sense, when, as I'll explain in a minute, Peter's already in a, gone into the, been born of water, in a sense. He's already been baptized. He's already starting. He's, he's in the process, though maybe it's, that's not complete either. But he certainly hasn't been born of the Spirit yet. That, that thing that Jesus talks about, this being born from above, hasn't happened to Peter yet. He's a great man. He's a wonderful man. But he's still just a man. At that point, no one had the resources necessary to resist. Oh, I wanted to add, when I say almost no one was loyal, does anyone remember who was? John was and four women. We, we got to be fair here. They were just willing to die. I mean, and they were, it was family, most, much of it. It was Mary, his mother, Salome, his, his aunt, it was, it was and, and John's mother. It was uh, Mary's, uh, the wife of Clopas, and Clopas was probably Joseph's brother, so it's his, his, his aunt by, by marriage. And it was also Mary Magdalene. Those four women and John did come and stand by the cross and, and, and did not leave him. Um, basically, were loyal right through it. And we have to be fair and say that. They became fearless. Pardon me. They would be born of the Spirit, and from then on, they would be trustworthy. They became fearless in the face of threats. They patiently endured persecution. They conducted themselves with integrity, not perfection, but integrity. And they proclaimed Jesus with a holy boldness in Jesus' footsteps. For this inner miracle to take place, Jesus said a person must be born from above, And I believe he used that term to describe what happened to him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. In other words, each of us must follow in his footsteps. What happened to him must happen to us. Let's look at the Matthew 3 passage. You know this, this account very well, but let's just see it afresh. John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. 
You recall John is out at the Jordan River there, probably the south end of the Jordan River, baptizing hundreds, thousands of people have come out to have been baptized. They're camping in the area. Jesus is there. This, is, this goes back to that, to that early moment. And Jesus comes to him, and here's what happens. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Remember, they're cousins. Their mothers are close. Mary adores Elizabeth. She's her safe person. When Mary's pregnant and does not have a husband, this is the woman Mary goes to for her, her first entire trimester. She can go and be with Elizabeth. While, uh, and, and Elizabeth's pregnant too. Uh, you can imagine that household. You, you've got everybody pregnant in this house. And, and, but, but as it came time for the birth, then Mary left and went back to Nazareth to the dangerous environment of her own family. But her, her, dear, her dear cousin Elizabeth is her safe person. So does John, do these two first cousins know each other? Well, of course they do. Of course they do. So John looks at Jesus and he says, I know you. <laughs> you should baptize me. I don't know anybody like you. What are you asking me to baptize you for? This is ridiculous. You've got nothing to repent of. But Jesus answering him uh, said, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I need to do this. There's a reason, John. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. I want you to get the picture. When Je- well, let, me, let me describe this. This is important. I think you have this in your head, but let's get it clear. Jesus comes out to that river to be baptized. What everyone else was doing was confessing their sins. They were confessing their sins and they were then symbolically washing. They were being washed uh, of their sins, saying, God, I'm a sinner. Please, I call on you for mercy. Wash my sins away. John was saying the Messiah is coming. You're all sinners. If he comes and judges you the way you are, you're, you're done for. You're, you're, you're in trouble. So you must repent to prepare your hearts for the coming of the Messiah or he'll cast you away. All right, so thousands were coming out to him uh, and being baptized this way. Jesus comes out and here's the problem. He doesn't have anything to confess. So Jesus took and at that moment transformed baptism for all of us for all time. He changed the meaning of, of Christian baptism. He's the first one being baptized for us. All right, so he comes out there, and here's what he knows. He knows that when he, if he says yes to the Father's plan, he knows where he'll end up. He will end up on a cross. In fact, he knows the details of it. As you read through the Gospels, he'll tell the, guy, he'll tell his, the guys. He will tell the apostles. He'll say, they're going to pull my beard out. They're going to spit on me. I'm going to be crucified. I mean, he just describes the horror of it. He knows all of it. So there he is standing. Remember something, up until this point, Jesus has done no miracles. He's been an outstanding eldest son of a family of a, of, of a number of children. And apparently at some point, Joseph has passed. So he's really probably even the breadwinner bearing this. He's a, he's a great man. 
but he has done no miracles. And each stories you read about him making little clay pigeons and they flow away and all, that's just garbage, it's mythology. He did nothing up until this point other than be an outstanding son who really understood scripture at an incredible level. So here he stands and he comes out to John and he says, you, I, you must baptize me. And we know from John's understanding that came after this, when he looked up and he saw Jesus, he said, behold the what? Lamb of God. Lamb of God. They, well, lambs, the lamb of God is, is the Passover lamb. In other words, behold the guy that's gonna die. Behold the one who's gonna die and shed his blood for us. I mean, and John doesn't really have this in his understanding. Jesus taught him this. So Jesus must have stood there and said, John, I must die. This is where this goes, John. I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. He didn't ask him to baptize him. He asked him to bury him. John, bury me. And so as Jesus was, was plunged under that water, he wasn't washing his sins away. He was laying himself down in the grave that the father had asked him to take. He died and he rose. And when he came up out of the water, the father's heart just goes, yes, my beloved son. You know, you can say, well, he's, he's the son of God. He had to do that. Did he? I think he freely gave his life. I think he chose. I think, how hard was it? Watch him in Gethsemane. Watch him go through, what, what do you call that? When, you, when you, you're, you're sweating in, in, in this huge uh, shock reaction knowing what was ahead of him, physically and spiritually. Don't tell me this was an easy decision. Don't tell me it was, a, it was just, oh, sure, he just did it. He walked through it. My foot, he did. He knew the cost. So when he stood there in those waters and he said, I embrace the cross. I will go to my death following my father's will. He was plunged and up he came. At that moment, he changed the meaning of baptism. He came up and from above, he was born from above, the Holy Spirit came down upon him and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit at that moment. What you have to understand is Jesus became, this is the man Jesus, you know his spirit's eternal, but the man Jesus became baptized in the Holy Spirit. And every miracle he did, this is when his power begins. This is when he goes out and he's tempted, uh, tempted to use the wrong power and turn like stones into bread. Doesn't do it. This is when he begins to heal. This is he turns water into wine. Everything starts happening after he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Everything he did, he did as a man baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit at the leading of God. Isn't that amazing? It downright shames us in a sense. He shows us what's possible. <laughs> he shows us what's possible um, what a man baptized in the Holy Spirit could do as he follows the will of God. All right. I have no idea where I stopped. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yeah. Okay, I think it's when Jesus was baptized by John. He didn't confess sins or ask God to forget for forgiveness because he had no sin to confess. But something very profound took place. He used the symbol of baptism to willingly surrender to God's path that led to the cross. If he surrendered to God's will, a cross awaited him and he knew it. So as he stood there in the water, he changed for us for all time the meaning of baptism. He didn't come there to wash his sins away. He came there to embrace a cross. So he asked John to bury him. 
And when he came up out of the water, the heavens above him opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. At that moment, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. There in the river, two actions took place. Number one, Jesus' full surrender was symbolized by his burial in the water. Would you say that? Jesus' full surrender was symbolized by his burial in the water. Number two, God's indwelling presence came down upon him from heaven. Say that. God's indwelling presence came down upon him from heaven or from above. In that moment, God prepared the human Jesus for the ministry that lay ahead of him. And Jesus told Nicodemus that the same thing would have to happen to him. He too must be born of water, full surrender to the path of the cross. He too must be born of the Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, in order for him to see, that means spiritually understand, and enter into, that means participate in, the new work that God was now doing in the earth. For Nicodemus to be changed, there would have to be a human decision and a divine response. The water and the spirit, a deep surrender and a powerful indwelling. Does that make sense? Now, let's, let me show you this. This is not something Jesus invented. He is really doing no more than explaining what the prophets said would happen. Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Jesus was surprised that a student of the Bible like Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about because this inner miracle had been foretold very precisely by the prophets. It's actually mentioned in many places, but two prophets saw it with amazing clarity, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They said when the Messiah arrived, a great miracle would take place in the hearts of people. Listen, and I want you to read these verses. We're going to do them kind of verse by verse because each one of these is a step of what we've seen. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Here we go. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Ezekiel is referencing that ritual washing. Now, that rich, as we've said, the ritual washing changes uh, into John the Baptist and then to Jesus. But he's talking about I'll wash you with water. Now, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll come inside you and I'll change your very orientation of your inner being. You will love me. You will want to please me. From now on, you you will not be uh, a rebel inside, but an obedient son, an obedient daughter of mine. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I will change your human spirit until you love me and I will fill you with my Holy Spirit. Do you see it? It's all right there. Now, let's look at Jeremiah 31. Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord. You can read with me if you like. When days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 33. This is the covenant which I will make after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. When he puts his law inside me and writes his law on my heart, I now want to obey him. I have a conscience. It's sensitive. 
I have a longing to please him. The inside of me loves God and wants to obey him. How many say, I know that's true of me? Yeah. Verse 34. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Everyone to whom this has happened will know me. Why? My spirit will be with them. And they will walk with me from the least, the weakest, to the, great, to the, to the greatest, the strongest. They'll vary in strength, but they'll all know me. For why? Because I will keep washing their sins away. Did you see it? In, in other words, when, they prom, when that promised miracle arrives, a person can be trusted. God trusts them because they genuinely want to please him and have been filled with the spirit so that they have the power to obey him. They aren't perfect, but they are continually forgiven, which means God will not leave them and even the least will still know him. A transformed person. This is why... You can know a tree by its fruit. But no, wait a minute. No, wait, I got something else. I want to show you an example of that. And then I'm going to show you the, 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 the tree thing as well. Go with me to Romans chapter 7. I want to show you someone who's, who's the least. I want to show you somebody, as it were, who's weak. But I want you to see their heart. Romans 7. I'll, I'll just do this real quickly. But, but, but get the picture. Romans 7, verse 15. Listen to the heart of this person. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is describing this person. Does their heart want to please God? Yes or no? Yes. Are they doing it? No. They're, they're, they're messing up bad, aren't they? This, and and it goes, gets, he, go, he describes it even more so. But notice this, the inner part of them wants to. Now the rebel doesn't. The rebel just wants an excuse. The rebel wants to get away with it. The rebel wants their own way. This person wants to please God wants to do the right thing. Listen, it goes on. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not want. Now, if you looked at that person's life, would you be impressed? <laughs> no, you wouldn't, would you? It'd be a, it'd be a matter of, of, of they're, they're failing uh, at, what, at what they're doing. I find then, the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the... Now, where does he say this problem comes from? He says, my heart wants to obey, but I have a problem. And where is the problem located? Where? In my members. Do you see that? What are your members? The flesh of your body. So Paul says, now, my spirit loves God. 
My spirit wants to please him, but my flesh, my appetites, my passions, my hormones, my weariness, my old, all the old damaged stuff in me, all of that is, is, is a very powerful force. And it's got me trapped and it's making me do stuff I don't want to do and preventing me from doing stuff I do want to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So now let's go on. Wretched, I love this, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So this guy is calling out going, help, I want to obey and I can't. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now here's what I want you to see, and this is really powerful. You listen to a person who's had that, whatever's gone on has changed their heart. They love God and they want to obey him. But in their flesh, it's so powerful, they aren't obeying him. And so Paul says this promise to that person. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's say it together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That promise of the continual forgiving of God. What, did, did, did Jeremiah say it would be there? And their sin I will... Uh-huh. No, this isn't even news. I mean, this is, this is expressing what God has been saying now for centuries. Yeah, their sin I will remember no more. That promise, Romans 8.1, is made to the Romans 7 man. Do you see it? When you're in that condition, that's your promise. A transformed person. This is why you can know a tree by its fruit. Now, I guess I'll show you that. Are you, are you all right? Yeah. All right. All right, go with me to Matthew 7 for a second. I want to show you the other side of the equation. I just showed you the least. I, want, I showed you somebody very weak whose heart is still changed. This is, a, this is a changed heart. And that God promises that mercy to them. But then I want to show you somebody on the other side of the equation. Somebody very religious, but whose heart isn't changed. Verse 15 of Matthew 7, Jesus is saying, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. What's in the heart will ultimately bear fruit. If you have a good heart and love God, you ultimately will produce good fruit. If you have a bad heart, no matter what you do, you will produce bad fruit in the long run. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruits cut down and thrown into the fire. You'll know them by their fruits. Now here he says something that's just amazing. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. So the fruit is, ultimately, our lives are coming into some sort of obedience. And notice what he says in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not what? Prophesy and then cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many. Please notice how Pentecostal those actions are. He is not talking about somebody who's not moving in power. 
He's talking about someone who has done what? He's prophesied, cast out devils, and done miracles, many of them in his name. And he says to him, or her, depart from me. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who what? Practice lawlessness. You see? Here you have someone who's very religious. Someone who's even got some access to, to real power, but whose heart has not been changed and who's a rebel inside. That's what Jesus knew about the human heart. He knew that until it's born from above, until God has come in and changed the inner want to, you're dangerous. You can't be trusted, no matter how religious or even powerful you are. Now, here we go. A transformed person will, as time progresses, produce good fruit. Why? Because they want to. And they've been given the power they need to obey. And God won't leave them while they're struggling to learn how to obey. The learning how to obey, basically, is the Romans 7 man, under the grace of God of Romans 8, has to learn to live out the power of Romans 8, where, God, where he's taught to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. This person doesn't need to be motivated by threats or bribes. They already desire to please God. They simply need to be shown how and encouraged while they learn. Do you believe that? A, a true born-again man or woman wants to do the right thing. You don't need to bribe them and tell them they're going to get fabulously rich if they do this. You don't have to threaten them and say they're going to hell if they don't. You don't have to use a whip or a carrot. They already want to do the right thing. They love him. And they're trying to. What, you, what do you have to teach a person like that? How? You have to be, tell them how, encourage them, and, and walk with them through the process. That's how a true changed person grows up. They simply need to be shown how and encouraged while they learn. Yet not everyone who calls themselves a believer is like that. Have you noticed the difference? I'm not talking about people who are, who are still struggling to learn to obey. I'm talking about people whose hearts seem unchanged. They're still selfish, dishonest when they feel they need to be, and resent any sort of correction. No matter what they say, it doesn't appear that there's a new heart inside. We all know genuine believers with huge problems, but through it all, you can tell they're really trying. Do you see the difference? There are people who say all the right stuff, and yet they're, if you, the heart, the pattern of the feet, just seems to go the wrong way. And you also know people who are just a basket case, but you also can see within them that genuine love of God. Yeah. They do some surprising things, these ones with the heart for the Lord. They're very generous or kind, self-denying. There's a different look in their eyes, a softness. There's even a difference in the tone of their voice. I, I sometimes, and I'm walking through airports and other places in the world or whatever, I just watch people and I'm thinking... And, and every so often you go, oh, there's one. <laughs> they didn't say a word. I don't, I don't know them from Adam. But they just went past and I go, there's one. You can see it. It's on us. We, 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 we show. At times, they may be even a little too honest. But through it all, you see a heart that loves him. The parable of the wheat and tares is the Lord's illustration of this. It says, a man planted a field of wheat. But someone sowed tares in it. And you know, don't you, that tares are a plant that look like wheat when it's small. 
So in the early stages of the field, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference from the wheat and the tares. I think tares are, are stuff like Timothy grass and uh, things like that. So the only, Jesus says the time when you can finally tell the difference is when it's grown up and the wheat has come to fruit, as it were. You now have the kernels on the wheat. And the, so you now have this wonderful wheat, and then you also have this grass that grew up that looked like wheat early on, but now all it does is get seeds stuck in your socks. So you, you, it's not the same. And he says, he, and, he, and he says the, 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 someone says, shall we pull out? The servants say, shall we pull out the tares from among the wheat? And he says, no, no, you can't tell. It's way too, it's not for you to tell. You, you'll get the wrong ones. You, you can't tell. So he says, just wait till it's harvest time and we'll, we'll separate them then. The Lord knows the heart, those who are his. It's not our place to sit in judgment of others. But just like Jesus, we too have to make decisions of whether or not to trust ourselves to people, whether or not to be vulnerable, whether or not to take their word on a matter. And Jesus' own example warns us that there are people who say they believe in him whom we should not trust. Even very religious people like Nicodemus or Peter before they were born from above or people like us before we were born from above. I just wanted to remind you of what happened with Nicodemus. His story didn't end there. We actually find out that in the course of Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus, in a, in a council of the Sanhedrin at one point, it's John chapter 7, stood up for Jesus and, and, and said, uh, hey, you don't try a man without having interviewed him, do you? You know, because they were planning on killing him. He said, this is crazy. You need, to, you need to give this man a fair hearing. So he was trying to defend him. But that isn't where the changes happened. The change for Nicodemus came, if you recall, in the evening when Jesus was crucified. And there was this dead body of the Lord on the cross. Jesus had prophesied it, said it would happen. Nicodemus had heard it. And as he watched all of this, what, what happened? Two old men, and, and John tells us this, two old men went up and took that body off the cross. Joseph of Arimathea had asked permission, remember this? Pilate gave him permission and here is Nicodemus, picture this, the teacher of Israel, the Sanhedrin member, the powerful leader, religious leader in this nation. And the moment he steps out and he begins to take, just picture, taking the, how do you get a body that's nailed and covered with gore off a cross? I mean, the process is horrible. And they've got to take these things out. They've got to somehow get this body and they've got to, and, it, and, it, and they've got to, wash it in its own way and wrap it. They've got a, I don't know if they put it in a wheelbarrow or if two old men, these are both old guys, carried this body to the nearby tomb. I don't know how they did it. But the moment he stepped out and began this, he's toast. His career as, a, as the religious leader is done. He is now uh, facing, uh, absolutely being, being thrown out at, at, at best. What did he do? He saw Jesus pick up his cross and follow God. And so at some point, Nicodemus said, wait for me. I'm coming too. And he picked up his cross 
and he followed his Lord. I get it. At that point, Nicodemus was born of the water. He surrendered to the path of the cross. He followed his Lord at whatever cost it was. And you have no doubt, do we, that he was there among the, those in, on the day of Pentecost and that the heavens opened and he was born from above as the power hit him and he was filled with the Holy Spirit that this deep change happened to this man. How do you think we know all this narrative? Because he became one of us. John, he, he became part of the church. He became a great man of God. Hallelujah. Let's apply it now. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, he would say to us today, he would say, you too must be born from above. And for that to happen, you and I must follow him down into that river and surrender ourselves completely to our cross, to that selfless path that God has planned for us. We too have to bury ourselves in that watery grave with Jesus and then rise with him to a life which is no longer focused on ourselves. And we too must welcome that dove from heaven, the baptism with the Holy Spirit so that he can dwell inside us in power. That miracle Jesus called being born from above still requires a human decision and a divine response. The water and the spirit, a deep surrender and a powerful indwelling. Does anyone want to be born today? Let's make a distinction. The American gospel, in the American church, if you're invited to receive Jesus, you're often invited to sort of invite him into your heart. You're asked to have a, would you like to have a friend who will help you and be with you? You want somebody to, in some cases, prosper you and make you, make you rich? Um, do you have problems you want this God of yours to solve? Come to Jesus. Those things are true in a certain level. Will he protect us? Does he provide for us? Is he our, is our, does he care for us? Sure. But would you notice the difference here? This isn't about you getting just blessed. I mean, it's eternal life and all. But the, the decision that Jesus was expecting, and I think this is why the early church really got saved. H haven't you struggled with it too? You know wonderful Christians, you know people who just love him deeply, and you know others who are very religious, and yet something's wrong. Their motivation, their orientation, their, they don't act right. It's something missing there. This has been the biggest struggle I've had over the years of my ministry, of trusting people because they were Christians, because they said they were Pentecostals, because, because I thought they knew all these things and believed all these things. I assumed that believing was enough. And yet, then I would see things that were horrible betrayals of the Lord. And I'm thinking, where did that come from? I think it's because they weren't born from above. I think the person, the man, the woman who has, loves him. They're weak. They'll make mistakes. They'll do dumb stuff. But they'll do it with an integrity. They'll do it with an honesty. They'll do it out of weakness, not out of defiance. Something's wrong in that heart. What's been missing in the American gospel? How have we come to the condition that the church is in today in our country? I think we have gutted the gospel of its demand. And the Lord calls us to follow him into that Jordan River.
to follow him into that path of the cross. Now, is the cross a sad life? No, but is it a costly life? Yes, it is. And if I belittled it and said it's not, I'd be lying. When you give yourself to Jesus, you surrender all. It's no longer about you. This isn't about your career. It isn't about your advancement. It isn't about your happiness. It's about you finding your place as God has called you and sharing Christ with others. However you do that, through love, through actions, through all kinds of things, God has a million ways we do that. But you are enlisted into his disciples. Have you made that decision? Or has it been, how do I get God to do stuff I need God to do for me? That, that doesn't change the heart, I don't think. I think that the cross, the born of water. And then to everyone who makes that, God pours out his spirit. And, and we do need to receive his spirit to say, Lord, I receive the fullness of the spirit. I let, come and dwell within me and to let this power of the spirit have his way within us. That has to be both born from, born from of the spirit and born of water. That man, that woman, I've said it clearly. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they aren't struggling. The Romans 7 person gives us an example of somebody who's blowing it. But that person has a heart. That's what's been missing, I think. And this is the beginning of discipleship. Would you stand with me? As as you've heard this, this might be something which is a first step for somebody. You say, well, I've never heard it that way but I want to follow this. This might be something for some of us in which it is a deeper step. You responded to what you were told in good sincerity. Somebody said, uh, do, you want, do you want a friend? Do you need help? Do you need, do you need some Jesus in your heart? And you, you didn't know what that meant, but it sounded good and you said it. <coughs> but as you listen to this, this might not even mean you actually go deeper. You may have already in integrity followed him to that cross. But as you hear this, you say, Jesus, I will come and die to self. That's what we die to. By the way, if it sounds morbid, I was talking with one of the sisters last night, and she said, yeah, well, try the life of sin. Uh, <laughs> she, she said, if you think this is a hard path, try sin. It, that's so true. You know, at, at, at the blessings of walking righteously with God. I'm just, but I'm not, I'm not here to market this. We have to look at the cross honestly. Am I willing to say, Jesus, my life from this point on is yours. I will be the person you've called me to be. I will serve you. I will live for you as you guide me. This isn't about me getting a little religion. This is about me being one of your disciples. Anyone today, would you bow your heads with me just a moment? Anyone today say, I need to make that decision for a first time, or honestly, I need to make it and make sure I have said this. You are my Lord. I come and I follow you into the waters of baptism. I, I die with you, Jesus, that I might live with you now and forever. I belong to you with all my heart. Anyone need to make that kind of full surrender? Would you raise your hand? Just hold it up so I can see it. Yes, praise God. Yes, yes. Yes, hallelujah. Yes. This is important. This, uh, this, you'd be surprised what shifts into gear when this becomes deeply real. 
It's, it's almost like that was what I was missing. That was what changed it. I'm, I'm, I've watched people who've been Christians for years, and when they finally engage this thing, all of a sudden the Christian life opens up and begins to really happen within them because this was held back. Yes, 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 yes. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Anyone today, this, the, the walk of the Holy Spirit, you're just saying, Holy Spirit, I am welcoming you right now. I need to be born from above. I need you to come upon me as my promised, my promised Lord to come inside me. And I need your power. I need your grace within my, to change my heart and do your inner miracle in me. Come, Holy Spirit. Who needs to raise your hands right now? Maybe two hands. Why don't you raise them both and just say, <laughs> yeah, I'm tricking you. Come, Holy Spirit. Just, just say it with me, church. Come, Holy Spirit. Dwell within me. I am your temple. I am a servant of the Lord. I love Jesus Christ. I want his way. And I need your power. You are more than welcome. You are the Lord of my life. Awaken my conscience. Write the law on the tablets of my heart. Make me a, a, a child of God. Full of love for you. You are my strength so that I can bear good fruit by you. I confess these things. I believe it in Jesus' powerful name. Hallelujah. Father God, with all our hearts, every one of us, you are the one. You are the one who comes and causes us to be born from above. Precious Lord Jesus, how, how wonderful your words are, how clear they are that we are to be born of the water and born of the Spirit, just like you were. We're to follow you into that river, and you'll pour out your lovely Spirit. You're the baptizer. You'll fill us, and we'll get right in line. Find Andrew and Peter and John and Nicodemus and all those who loved you, and we will serve you in this generation, in this day, in this time, in this place. We are yours, your disciples. Thank you, God for what changing our hearts in your mighty name we pray if you agree with that would you say amen thanks for listening if you like this podcast please click the like button subscribe and share it with a friend for more information just head to our website lifelessonspublishing.com that's lifelessonspublishing.com there you'll be able to order many of the books pastor steve has written